President Biden has unveiled a budget that would increase taxes on oil and gas companies and hike the corporate tax rate. The plan could cut the deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. The package has to make it through the Republican-controlled House first. Today is Thursday, March 9th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. We'll break down the messaging in President Biden's latest budget that's coming up. Also, a Stanford finance professor says credit card perks are being subsidized by people who have less. And there's a treatment to curb opioid addiction that saved lives, and the federal government is now making it easier for doctors to prescribe. The impact of this will be felt for years to come. It is a true historic change. WBUR's Martha Biebinger looks at why that may not be enough to increase its use. It's 401 News Headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Before an audience in Philadelphia, President Biden says, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I will tell you what you value. Biden quoting his father, as he often does, this time to rally support for his 2024 budget. It's a $6.9 trillion plan that Biden says would reduce the deficit by more than $2 trillion over the next decade. Biden is inviting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to talk about it. I'm ready to meet with the Speaker anytime, tomorrow, if he has his budget. Lay it down, tell me what you want to do, I'll show you what I want to do, see what we can agree on, what we don't agree on, let's see what we, we vote on. But the plan, which calls for raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations to help pay for tax breaks for families, lowering health care costs, and extending the life of Medicare, has little chance of getting through the Republican-controlled House. However, it does serve to advance White House talks with Congress over raising the debt limit. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will remain at a Washington, D.C. area hospital for a few days after suffering a concussion. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports a hospital stay comes after a fall at a D.C. hotel. Senator McConnell was attending a Wednesday evening dinner at the Waldorf Astoria before he suffered the fall in a concussion at the hotel. A McConnell spokesman said the 81 year old was taken to a D.C. area hospital and will remain there for a few days for observation and treatment. The spokesman also said McConnell was grateful to the medical professionals for their care and to his colleagues for their warm wishes. Several congressional members reached out to McConnell soon after the news of the injury, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who extended hopes for a speedy recovery. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. At a Senate hearing today, lawmakers from both parties worked to get answers about the massive train derailment and toxic chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the CEO of Norfolk Southern and other officials faced numerous questions from lawmakers about the environmental and public health threats resulting from the accident. Ann Vogel, the EPA administrator in Ohio, told the Senate committee that residents in East Palestine are worried about the potential long-term effects. How long will we test the water? How long until the fish come back? Can I play in the yard and eat out of my garden? How or when will we know if the damage to our village is worse than we thought or even irreparable? That question was later put to Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw. Would you live there, given what you've seen? Yes, sir. Okay. I believe that the air is safe. I believe that the water okay. is safe. There are hundreds of tests. Okay. There are millions of data points. The EPA has reportedly warned Norfolk Southern that it will be accountable for all expenses related to the cleanup and restoration of East Palestine. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes down 543 points or 1.6 percent to end the day at 32,254. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the last three decades, every Massachusetts governor has claimed their office is completely exempt from the state's public records law. Governor Maura Healey claimed last year before she took office her administration would be different. But as WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, that has not been the case. Healy's office refused to give WBUR copies of any sexual harassment complaints filed with the governor's office in the last five years. It also withheld settlement and severance agreements. Justin Silverman is executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition. So I think, uh, unfortunately, this is Governor Healy continuing to say that she's being transparent and following the public records law when, in fact, she's taking the same position as her predecessors. So different governor, same story. The governor's office said it plans to voluntarily abide by the public records law going forward, but it says that policy doesn't apply to any documents created before she took office, and it could withhold records for other reasons. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. The Lemonster man accused of trying to open an emergency door during a cross-country United Airlines flight is being ordered to have a mental health evaluation. A federal judge in Boston issued the order this afternoon during the detention hearing for Francisco Severo Torres. Torres is also charged with trying to stab a flight attendant on the trip Sunday from Los Angeles to Boston. He had to be restrained by passengers. A Catholic high school in Newton and another in Fall River are closing for good at the end of the school year. Students at the all-girl Mount Alvernia High School in Chestnut Hill will transfer to Fontbonne Academy in Milton. The founders of the missionary Franciscan Sisters of the Immaculate Conception say they need to sell their campus because they're not able to continue to live there. The Diocese of Fall River says Bishop Connolly High School will close because of declining enrollment and financial losses caused by the pandemic and the economy. School officials announced both closures yesterday. In the forecast, pretty nice out there right now. Some sunshine mixing it up with clouds. Partly cloudy overnight tonight, about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, even more sunshine than we had today. Could reach the high 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden rolled out a $6.9 trillion budget proposal today with a speech in a Philadelphia Union Hall. I was expressing my doubt to you, show me your budget. I will tell you what you value. Well, folks, let me tell you what I value with the budget I'm releasing today. This budget is more a statement of values than a roadmap for what Congress will actually pass. Presidential budgets are required by law. Biden's gives a likely preview of what he'll run on when he launches his expected re-election campaign. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is here in the studio to tell us about it. Hey, Tam. Hey, Ari. Before we get to the politics, let's start with the substance. In the lead-up to the budget's release, the White House talked a lot about deficit reduction, bringing spending more in line with revenue. Now that the budget is out, how close does it come to doing that? This is not an austerity budget. It includes pages and pages of programs that Biden says will make life easier for working families. Things like paid family leave, college affordability, universal free preschool. Uh, It calls for increased spending on border security and continued support for Ukraine. It also notably extends the life of Medicare by 20 years by by allowing more negotiation on uh, prescription drug prices and also by raising taxes on the wealthy. Is that how this is paid for, by raising taxes? 
Yes, taxing the rich and large corporations is a major feature of this budget. It calls for closing what the White House calls tax loopholes for oil and drug companies. It would include rolling back some of the tax breaks passed by Republicans during the Trump administration uh, and getting rid of other tax breaks that have been around for even longer. Biden argued that this was all just a matter of fairness. No billionaire should be paying a lower tax than somebody working as a school teacher or a firefighter or any of you in this room. I do have to say this was really a campaign style event and mm. Biden appears to be gearing up for a campaign that will focus on reaching middle and working class voters with an economic pitch. Presidential budgets are typically dead on arrival in Congress, no matter who is in power. Uh, of course, right now, Republicans control the House. So what are your expectations for where this budget's going to go? Oh, it's dead on arrival. Okay. Uh, and the White House knows it. Uh, but that doesn't appear to be the point here. Much of what Biden calls for in this budget are ideas and proposals that he campaigned on three years ago. And, and the White House has jammed our inboxes with polls showing how popular many of these ideas are with the American people. And so even though Republicans say this proposal isn't serious and there's no chance they would support tax increases like this, um, this budget is an opening offer from Biden, both in negotiations with Congress over raising the debt ceiling and in funding the government. So Biden has now said, all right, America, here's what I want to do. Have Republicans in Congress done the same? Yes. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that this budget proposal was completely unserious uh, and that Washington has a spending problem, not a tax problem. And he was critical of President Biden for not sitting down with him and just sort of hashing out a budget compromise. Biden responded to that today in his remarks, saying he would be happy to meet with McCarthy just as soon as he releases his own budget. Um, House Republicans aren't yet saying uh, what they will do. Uh, they say that they need cuts in order to raise the debt ceiling, but they haven't yet said what they will cut. And they don't want to cut Medicare or defense, which leaves a pretty small piece of the overall pie where they would have to get all these big cuts that they're asking for. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. For two decades, with overdose deaths on the rise, the federal government limited access to an opioid addiction treatment that's seen as the gold standard. It's a medication called buprenorphine. Clinicians who wanted to prescribe it needed special approval from federal drug agents. But now, that requirement is gone. From member station WBUR in Boston, reporter Martha Biebinger looks at the impact. That tightly controlled medication, buprenorphine, has helped a woman named Kim stay off heroin and avoid an overdose for nearly 20 years. We're only using Kim's first name to prevent discrimination linked to her drug use. Kim uses a brand of buprenorphine called Suboxone, thin strips of film she dissolves under her tongue. It's the best thing they could have ever come out with. I don't think I ever even had a desire to use heroin since I've been taking them. That's because buprenorphine is an opioid that reduces cravings for heroin or fentanyl. It has much weaker effects than those drugs. Some clinicians worry about using an opioid to treat an addiction to opioids, but study after study shows it helps people stay off the more dangerous drugs, so there's a substantially lower risk of overdose and death. I don't get high on Suboxone. They just keep me normal. But Kim's had a hard time finding a primary care doctor willing to prescribe Suboxone. So she bounces from one treatment program to another. Sometimes her prescriptions lapse and the cravings return. That's especially scary now when what's sold on the streets is increasingly the powerful opioid fentanyl. I've seen so many people fall out in the last month. Fall out as in overdose. That stuff is so strong that... Mm -hmm. 
within a couple minutes, boom. Last year, as deaths after an overdose topped 100,000, only about 7% of doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants were licensed to prescribe buprenorphine. The extra steps required by the Drug Enforcement Administration were a major obstacle. Prescribers had to take an eight-hour training. They could only treat a limited number of patients and had to keep special records. They were given a DEA registration number starting with X, a letter that many say made them a target for drug enforcement audits. Dr. Bobby McCamala is with the American Medical Association. Just the process associated with being able to take care of our patients with substance use disorder made us feel like, boy, this is dangerous stuff. The science doesn't support that, but the rigmarole suggested that. The rigmarole is mostly gone. Congress X'd what became known as the X waiver in legislation President Biden signed late last year. But McCamala says that perception the waiver created, that Suboxone was dangerous, lingers. So there is the legacy of elevating this to a level of scrutiny and caution that needs to be sort of walked back. And I think that's going to come from education. A new generation of doctors, nurses, and physician assistants are coming out of schools that have added addiction care training. For clinicians who've been out of school for a while, there are lots of resources online. The nation's drug czar, Dr. Rahul Gupta, says getting rid of the X waiver will ultimately save millions of lives. The impact of this will be felt for years to come. It is a true historic change that, frankly, I could only dream of being possible. But other addiction experts wonder, was the waiver the actual reason clinicians weren't treating people addicted to opioids? Or an excuse used to mask disdain for these patients? The truth serum moment is happening in clinics across the country, including one where Kim is a patient. Nurse Jamie Simmons says many patients with a substance use disorder are complicated like Kim. Today was your last Suboxone film from the last mm-hmm. prescription? Okay. Simmons spends all her time on a relatively small number of addiction patients at the Greater New Bedford Community Health Center in southern Massachusetts. Simmons cannot prescribe Suboxone herself, But Kim's primary care doctor may be willing to give it a try now that the X waiver is gone. Simmons warns Kim that her doctor is worried about drug interactions after learning that Kim uses cocaine and Xanax occasionally. She is a little hesitant to keep going, but I'm asking her for more time to work with you so that we can try to to work together on on some of these other things as well. So here's Simmons' plan. She'll manage most of Kim's care while helping the doctor get comfortable with offering addiction treatment. Simmons says buprenorphine prescribing has to become more routine. Because you wouldn't not treat a diabetic. You wouldn't not treat a patient who is hypertensive. People can't control that they formed an addiction to opiate alcohol or a benzo. But Simmons knows there are clinicians who do not see addiction as a disease like diabetes. Others hesitate because they don't have a nurse like Simmons on staff to manage addiction care. Right now, only about a quarter of patients who might benefit are prescribed the medication. Eliminating the X waiver will increase the number, but it's not clear how much or how fast. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WBUR and Kaiser Health News. Topol, the Israeli actor who starred in the film Fiddler on the Roof, has died. He was 87 years old. Israel's president announced Topol's passing on Twitter last night. Jeff London has this appreciation. 
When the film version of Fiddler on the Roof was released in 1971, it starred a relatively obscure actor with a single name, Topol, as Tevye the Dairyman. Oh, dear Lord. You made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. It was the role of a lifetime. If I were a rich man, all day long I bid a bid If I were a wealthy man. Born Chaim Topol in Tel Aviv in what was then called Palestine, he trained to be a commercial artist but found his calling as a stage actor, co-founding the Haifa Municipal Theatre where he played Shakespeare in Hebrew. But when he was cast in an Israeli production of Fiddler, it led to him playing the father of five daughters in London when he was just 30. That's where film director Norman Jewison saw him, and the rest is history. Isn't this the little girl I carry? Isn't this the little boy at play? While Topol acted in many movies and television series, Tevya kept calling him back. By his own estimate, he played the role 3,500 times on stage around the world. To life, to life. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. To life. Is to the father I've tried to be. Is to my pride. Hey, Ari, you know how this week Dominion Voting Systems is getting a lot of attention for its defamation lawsuit against Fox News? Yeah, it feels like there's new documents every day. Totally. Well, now there's more fallout around Dominion happening right here in California. We're going to have more on that in just a few minutes. I'll be listening. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, mobile home parks provide affordable housing, but that can disappear when parks are sold. New efforts are being made to help residents buy the land underneath their homes. Even if the residents do this miraculous work and get all the financing in order, they're going to have competition, and the competition comes in millions over. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. In business, the Dow lost more than 1.5% today, 544 points to close at 32,255. S&P fell more than one and three quarters percent to end the session at 39.18. The Nasdaq dropped 2% to finish at 11,338. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Actor Robert Downey Jr. is joining the board of directors of a Boston startup. Aura develops products to prevent identity theft and provide digital security. It announced today that Downey Jr who portrays the tech-savvy superhero in Iron Man in the Marvel movies, will be the public face of the company and an investor. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. 
46 degrees now in the Boston area. A nice afternoon. We could have a rain shower early tonight. Should be cloudy overnight, down around 30 degrees for a low. Tomorrow could be the mildest day of the week, and the sunniest too. Lots of sunshine during the day Friday, reaching 48 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Return to Seoul, a film by Davy Shu about a woman who embarks on a journey to South Korea, where she was born before being adopted and raised in France, now playing select cities. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. An automatic upgrade to first class on a flight? Cash back for your date night dinner? Elite status hotel bookings? Do those free credit card perks actually come at a price? And if so, who pays it? Well, our next guest argues that people with less financial security are subsidizing those bonuses for wealthier urban professionals. Chinzi Shu is a finance professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello. Explain this argument that credit card rewards amount to a tax on less affluent people. How does that work? So credit card companies um, charge fees for when merchants Uh, use cards. And this is because they provide a service. So uh, interchange fees cover things like fraud protection, for instance. This is very useful. But actually, credit card companies want to compete for users. And they compete by creating really nice perks. And then they fund those perks on the back end by charging merchants more for every swipe. And so when merchants see, actually, I have a pretty big bill coming from interchange, what they do is they raise prices. And everybody pays those prices regardless of whether they're using a credit card or not. And since less wealthy people use credit cards less frequently, they end up paying for the fancy perks that rich people are getting? Essentially, yes. So the prices that the merchants are using to recoup their losses on interchange are paid by everybody. And then the fees that the merchants are paying are being rebated back to wealthy credit card users. Mm. There are lawmakers who see this as a problem. Tell us what people in Congress are talking about doing. So there was a a Durban amendment that was passed a while ago that regulated interchange fees and debit cards. And when that happened, we saw that debit rewards went down. Senator Durban has essentially introduced a bill that would do the same for credit cards. And I believe the idea is to model it somewhat like the way interchange is regulated in Europe, for instance, where once you cap the amount of fees that can be charged to merchants, what you'll see is that there's actually not going to be enough to fund these rewards. And so the rewards go away. But now that the fees are lower, the merchants aren't passing on those fees to prices as much as they would have done before. So what advice do you have for consumers? Well, (laughs) I mean, like, is this the credit card companies and the lawmakers problem? Or if I'm using a card and worried that the perks are unethical, or if I'm not using a card and worried that I'm carrying the water of rich people, like what, 
should this be a concern to the individual? Well, this is one of those cases where um, the structure of the way cards compete for customers and the way merchants try to compete for customers makes it so that you know if you're carrying a card, you're strictly better off and you want to keep doing that. And it's hard to get out of that system without something that looks like system-wide interchange regulation. Sounds like you're saying there's not much the individual can do. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) if you are a business owner who sets prices, you can potentially price discriminate. You mean like charge a fee for credit card users? Exactly. If we lived in a world where everybody just paid the fees that their payment method actually charged the store, then this redistributive element would go away. Right now, everybody pays the same price, but some get the perk and some don't. So if every business owner just said, you use a credit card, you're going to pay 1% more, whatever it is, this problem Mm -hmm. would more or less be solved? This problem would be mitigated by a lot. Yes. That's Stanford Business School finance professor Chinzi Shu, along with Jeffrey Rapucci. She wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times with the headline, The Dirty Little Secret of Credit Card Rewards Programs. Thank you. Thank you. A county in Northern California has dropped a voting system that has faced a barrage of election fraud conspiracy theories. The system is from Dominion, which says the move is, quote, yet another example of how lies have damaged the company. As Roman Battaglia from Jefferson Public Radio reports, the controversial decision has now left the county without a way to conduct elections. Shasta County is small and rural, occupying the northernmost end of the Sacramento Valley. This deeply red corner of a blue state has been embroiled in unproven claims of fraud since the 2020 election. The county's board of supervisors has shifted more conservative in recent years, and public fights between supervisors and election officials aren't uncommon. The tone and the tenor of this conversation is further destroying the trust. No. Yes, it is. No, it's not. You're contributing to that problem. In late January, county supervisors terminated their contract with Dominion, Leading that charge was board chair Patrick Jones. Jones has been highly critical of any kind of electronic voting machine. And for people to say that we have free and fair elections without knowing really all the things that have been going on and the things that we know, it's just not true. Jones has focused his anger on Dominion, echoing attacks the company has faced by right-wing conspiracy theorists since the 2020 election. Donald Trump supporters repeatedly and falsely claim that Dominion machines were used to switch votes from Trump to Joe Biden. And Dominion has launched defamation lawsuits, including a high-profile case against Fox News that's currently being argued in court. Back in Shasta County, the board voted 3-2 to two to get rid of Dominion. Instead, they're exploring a system that involves hand-counting ballots. Mary Rickert is one of the two supervisors who voted against the decision. I'm just saying that it's a poor financial decision for us to terminate the contract with Dominion. I think we're potentially opening up ourselves for litigation for Shasta County. I am very risk adverse. I think it's a total waste of money. The litigation she's talking about is a federal law requiring that disabled voters have a way to vote independently, which requires some form of mechanical or electronic voting machine. Board Chair Patrick Jones believes that removing all machines from elections will increase trust in the results. But research has found hand-counting ballots is more expensive, more time-consuming, and less accurate than using a machine. One supervisor who voted with Jones, Kevin Cry, believes he's found the solution to possible accessibility lawsuits. 
He says he solicited outside funding from the prominent election fraud conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell. And I'm not about to waste money on anything, especially this. So I have secured the money, and I uh, will support upholding my decision because we will not use Shasta County money to go down this direction. Cry says that Lindell will put money in an escrow account to pay for any legal fees the county might face from lawsuits. That offer drew harsh criticism from the two supervisors not in support of the changes, including Tim Garman. Again, I appreciate what you're trying to do. What am I trying to do, Supervisor Garman? You're trying to save the county money by putting it up for sale. Lindell himself is the target of a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit from Dominion. If the county wants to try counting ballots by hand, they first need approval from the Secretary of State, which could take at least nine months. Until then, without choosing another vendor, Shasta County doesn't have a way to conduct elections at all. That's left thousands of county residents even more confused about the trustworthiness of its elections. For NPR News, I'm Roman Battaglia in Shasta County, California. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, millennials are at their peak home buying years while many baby boomers are downsizing or buying second homes. With inventory at an all-time low, young and old often compete for the same houses. That story is still to come. Also, the feuds and controversies that are part of the history of the Academy Awards. In sports, the Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the Edmonton Oilers. The buck drops at 7.30. Red Sox beat the Yankees 11-7 today in spring training play in Tampa. The Sox remain the only undefeated team in the Grapefruit League. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, even more sunshine than we had today could reach the high 40s. 46 degrees now in Boston at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And William James College's hybrid graduate certificate in executive coaching. Boost your career or start a new one. Apply now for fall. WilliamJames.edu. New York City Mayor Eric Adams asserts too many migrants are coming to his city. Our right to shelter laws, our social services, and our values are being exploited. Where does New York want to send them instead? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The head of Norfolk Southern apologized to Congress over the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, a month ago that spilled toxic chemicals. I am determined to make this right. And Alan Shaw pledged millions of dollars to clean up the dangerous mess. He testified before a Senate committee today about what went wrong during the train derailment, chemical spill, and controlled burn. But Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown says residents are worried and more needs to be done. I've heard their fears for what this means for their town and fears for the future. All because a big corporation, Norfolk Southern, chose to invest much of its massive profits in making its executives and shareholders wealthy at the expense of Ohio communities along its rail tracks. A bipartisan bill on railroad safety was introduced last week.
A wave of Russian missile attacks on Ukraine has killed at least six people. It also temporarily cut off outside power to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports. In a furious speech to the International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Governors, Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi warned that the world was not doing enough to prevent a nuclear accident in Zaporizhia. I am astonished by the complacency. Yes, the complacency. What are we doing to prevent this from happening? Each time we are rolling a dice. And if we allow this to continue, then one day our luck will run out. Meanwhile, a spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force said six of the 81 missiles fired today were hypersonic Kinjal missiles, which cannot be intercepted by Ukraine's air defense. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 543 points. The Nasdaq down 237. S&P 500 down 73. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. White supremacist propaganda activity is at an all-time high, says the Anti-Defamation League. It includes distribution of flyers and public gatherings by white supremacist groups. And last year, Massachusetts recorded the second highest number of these incidents in the country. Here's WBUR's Fausto Menard. The Anti-Defamation League says New England saw a 96% increase in this kind of activity between 2021 and 2022. There were 465 such incidents in Massachusetts last year, second only to Texas. The league's Peggy Shuker says hate messages can have a lasting effect on people. If you were in a town and you receive a hateful, racist, or anti-Semitic message, that tells you you're not welcome. That creates fear. It makes you intimidated from maybe engaging in things in your own community. Shuker says incidents of hate should be reported. She also encourages people to gather in public to let hate groups know that they are not welcome in their community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The number of people riding the MBTA may never return to what it was before the pandemic. That's the assessment today from the chair of the MBTA's board of directors. The chief financial officer told Beacon Hill lawmakers today that ridership is just more than half of pre-pandemic levels. T officials say factors at play include shutdowns for repairs and service reductions the federal government forced because of safety concerns. Massachusetts drivers should look out for a new kind of pedestrian this spring. The state's amphibians start their migration as it warms up. They often have to cross streets. The Division of Fisheries and Wildlife asked drivers to be on the lookout for frogs and salamanders on the roads. Drivers are advised to avoid wood woodside roads, especially on rainy nights. Massachusetts is home to a handful of rare and threatened amphibian species. It's now 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H.com. 46 degrees now in the Boston area should have a moonlit night tonight. Some clouds around, lows about 30. Tomorrow is sunny, dry, and milder, inching to the high 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, a state that has been hammered this winter by storm after storm after storm. And now California is bracing for more, a series of atmospheric rivers that could bring more flooding and infrastructure damage to the already reeling state. NPR's Nathan Rott has been covering this unusually wet winter here in California and joins us now. Hey, Nate. Hey, Elsa. Hey, so can you just first explain for everybody, what exactly is an atmospheric river? Well, they're all the rage this winter. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be the 10th atmospheric river that California has experienced this season. And basically, atmospheric rivers are these... It's important to know they're they're totally normal weather phenomena, right? They occur all the time uh, on the West Coast and many other parts of the world. And basically, they're a band of highly concentrated moisture in the air, you know, in the atmosphere, that transport water from the tropics to higher latitudes like where we are in Southern California. So they really are like a river in the sky that can dump huge amounts of rain and snow, uh, as we've seen with some of the widespread flooding that's happened here over the last few months. Exactly. Huge amounts. And and this latest atmospheric river, it's expected to start hitting today, right? Yeah, that's right. So forecasters are saying this latest atmospheric river will start to impact the state tonight uh, with the peak of the storm expected tomorrow, Friday. Uh, And to give you a sense of just how big the expected impact is, at a briefing earlier today, California state meteorologist used the word astounding to describe some of the projected rain totals. Uh, Some parts of the central California coast could get up to eight inches of rain. Um, Some major mountain passes could get more than a hundred inches of snow. Uh, So it's going to be a very heavy couple of days we're looking at. I mean, this is happening, Nate, while some parts of California are still literally digging themselves out from earlier storms. Yeah, literally is uh, it is appropriately used there. Uh, here's what I heard from uh, Cynthia Kawasaki-Yi, a spokesperson at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park earlier today. We have 12 feet of snow in some areas, and so we are digging out vehicles, equipment, access points to our homes for residents that live in these areas. And roofs, she said, is actually a a really big concern right now because this atmospheric river is expected to bring warmer conditions than previous ones. Uh, So at some high elevation places, they could see rain, not snow. Uh, And, you know, you don't have to shovel a whole lot of snow in your life to know that wet snow is a heck of a lot heavier than dry. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other big issue the rain could bring is snow melt and runoff. Uh, Warm rain on snow can help speed up melting in California snows. California's mountains are just packed with all of the snow right now. So there's the potential for major runoff, localized flooding along streams and rivers, especially along the the Sierra Nevada mountains. So how is the state preparing for these impacts? Yeah, so reservoir operators are already increasing releases from some of the state's reservoirs to accommodate for the expected runoff. Uh, Remember, nearly all of the state was in a drought just a few months Mm -hmm. ago, so many of these reservoirs have room to fill. Uh, Flood warnings have been issued in many parts of the state. Emergency response crews are getting ready for a whole spate of potential road closures, landslides, avalanches, and all the other you know, normal inconveniences you'd expect from a storm of this magnitude. And real quick, Nate, you mentioned the drought. I mean, we're hearing people wonder, oh, maybe the drought's over in California. But yeah, right, right. 
You're right. Yeah, it's not. Uh, the meeting to, at the briefing today, basically the head of the California's Department of Water Resources said the state's groundwater reservoirs are still critically low. Uh, and so it will take more than one wet winter for those to really recover. That is NPR's Nathan Rod in Ventura, California. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Mobile home parks can be a solid option for people seeking affordable housing, but many people don't own the land underneath their mobile homes. So when the parks are sold out from under them, it often means eviction or much higher rents. Colorado is the latest state to pass legislation giving mobile home residents a better chance at buying the land themselves. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander reports. Felix Jimenez has lived in Three Mile Mobile Home Park for over 30 years. And this morning before work, he's kicking the snow off his boots to show me around his unit. So you have a, one dog, one cat, and a bird? Or? Um, <laughs> oh, that I know. oh my gosh, and then so many more. <clears throat> oh, we got snakes. We got snakes. Jimenez and his wife raised five kids and at least one dog, cat, bird, and a few snakes here in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, about an hour outside of Aspen. Jimenez says his family even adopted a hurt salamander a few years ago. They called her Sally, and she survived for like 10 years after I brought her home. So that, that kind of started our, our thing with animals. And now two of their grown children are living in the neighboring units. I own this one, you know, and then Vanessa owns that one. And Lori, my wife, actually owns this one, and, and Gabriella stays there. Jimenez's family may own their units at Three Mile, but they don't own the land underneath them. That's very common in Colorado. Only eight of the state's 731 registered parks are owned by residents, in part because deep-pocketed investors are swarming to buy them. Once the parks get listed, it's like a feeding frenzy of bids. Sydney Shallot runs a local social justice nonprofit called Manaus. She says residents of mobile home parks can pool their money and buy the land under their homes. But that requires a lot of time and legal support, especially in resort areas like this one near Aspen, where real estate is among the most expensive in the U.S. And so even if the residents do this miraculous work and get all the financing in order, they're going to have competition, and the competition comes in millions over. Last year, Colorado updated some of its laws to give residents a better shot at purchasing their parks. Park owners now have to give residents 120 days notice when their properties go up for sale. 19 states have laws in place addressing mobile home park purchases. Colorado, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire's are among the strongest, written to give residents a fair shake when making an offer. But Shallot says 120 days is still not a lot of time. To put together an S-Corp or an LLC, whichever one they choose, to learn self-governance, to pull together the financing. And they all work, right? Like everybody in here either works or is retired. And so like, that's a big lift. But luckily, the residents of Three Mile were given more than four months to get their finances in order. The current owners of Three Mile want to sell to the residents, so they've agreed not to list the property for now. Instead, they've given Shallot and Manaus time to buy the park so they can operate it until the residents are ready to purchase. Felix Jimenez and his wife, Lori Bennett, aren't sure what they would do if Three Mile sold to an outside buyer. To think of increasing rents on a retired salary, it was like, okay, we're going to get roommates, we're going to sell, you know. And when we thought we'd have to sell, it was like, well, what state do we move to? So if the nonprofit helping residents can raise the money for the down payment and get loans from a few lenders, they can give Three Mile residents years to buy the park back. 
but not everyone gets to work with cooperative sellers. Most residents trying to purchase their parks are fighting a clock with a lot less resources, and this deal could still fall through over the next few years. Despite the uncertainty, Jimenez and Bennett are hopeful. I'm still praying that everything comes together the way they need. If Manaus is successful, the roughly 90 people who live at Three Mile will have the luxury of time and maybe inspire others along the way. Hopefully other residents can go, we can do this for our park. Manaus has until the end of April to close on the park. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Zander. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Swing by an open house for a mid-size home these days, and you might see buyers from two different generations sizing each other up. With so few properties for sale, millennials and baby boomers are often competing for the same homes. NPR's Arazu Rizvani reports. Michael Chen and his family have been hunting for a home for a while. I think we've been looking for somewhere between three and four years. The 39-year-old healthcare consultant lives in Rochester, New York with his wife and two kids. Chen wants a house where he can comfortably host his parents, where there are also better public schools. But he's been up against a lot in recent years. First, it was the high home prices, then the climbing mortgage rates, and lately, there's been another big challenge. It's funny, I think it's sort of become a recurring pattern. We go to these open houses and we often see folks like our parents' age, so I guess boomers, Those boomers, they've also taken notice. You know, we're two different generations, and we're finding ourselves in the same places at the same time wanting the same thing. That's 71-year-old Jane Wilson. She and her husband, who are both retired teachers, are in the market for a home in Hawaii. We're tired of a paddleboard behind the sofa, golf clubs in the entry, and we don't really have room for our grandchildren to come over and visit us while we're here. Millennials, like the Chens, have hit their peak home buying years later in life, at a time when many boomers, like the Wilsons, are living longer and also moving later, says Jessica Louts of the National Association of Realtors. I do think that speaks to people outside of COVID being healthier later in life and being active and wanting to purchase a home at a time where historically we may have seen people staying in place or moving into family members' homes or a retirement community, but not purchasing a primary residence. These shifting timelines have brought the two generations head to head. And with the supply of homes so scarce and the prices still high, millennials like Chen have had a hard time competing. I'm going up against people who have had 20, 30, 40 years of professional experience and life savings and retirement savings. I would say probably they have more to draw on than I do. Longtime homeowners can wield the equity they've built over decades in ways millennials typically can't. They can often clear the competition with all-cash offers. And it doesn't stop there, says Florida-based real estate agent Christina Goldstein. They've got a lot of power in that cash. They can waive all of the contingencies. We don't want an inspection. We don't want an appraisal. We don't care if it needs flood insurance because they're not being required by a mortgage company or a lender to have all of those things in place. This competition does sometimes turn into collaboration. Nearly a quarter of millennials who do buy a home get help from the bank of mom and dad, who are often boomers. 
For young homebuyers who can't depend on that kind of intergenerational wealth, it's a steep hill to climb, though not impossible. We're doing a final walkthrough tomorrow and closing on Friday. And so... <laughs> the Chens did finally find their home. Their years-long search gave them time to save for a greater down payment. They also took a page out of the Boomer playbook and waived some inspections. As for the Wilsons, to buy their next home, they'll also be selling. And they have one request for their agent. Can we avoid the person who comes in with that cash offer right away and, and sell to a young family? We, we'd really like to do that. And there's no shortage of young families who'd welcome it. Arizu Resvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Coming up, we'll hear about memorable Oscar moments from the year the show fell 20 minutes short to the time there was a 12-minute standing ovation for a Lifetime Achievement Award. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 25 minutes on WBUR, clocks spring forward this weekend, meaning we lose an hour of sleep. So what do sleep scientists say about the switching back and forth? That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Lesley University, educating the exceptionally competent and socially conscious business leader. Learn more at lesley.edu. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBR app downloaded at the App Store today. And sports Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the Edmonton Oilers. Puck drops at 7.30. Red Sox are holding on as the only undefeated Major League Baseball team in spring training. Today, the Sox made it even sweeter as they beat the Yankees 11-7 in Tampa. Boston got six home runs. Right fielder Narcisco Crook was good for two two of them in the forecast. Partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures about 30. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine. Highs could reach the upper 40s. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Mero Vista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at ayf.com slash Vista. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the state shut down for COVID exactly three years ago. Leaders in healthcare, education, and social justice joined the show to reflect on how we've endured and how much the world has changed. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This weekend, all of Hollywood and film fans around the world will be anticipating these words. And the Oscar goes to... For almost a century, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has been handing out awards. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco runs down some key moments from the Oscars. I'm history. standing at the Blossom Room at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. This is where, in 1929, the newly formed Academy handed out its first golden statuettes. At the end of a private black-tie banquet, leading man Douglas Fairbanks announced the winners. The ceremony lasted all of 15 minutes. The winners were all silent movies, except one, the jazz starring Al Jolson. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. 
The top prize in 1929 went to Wings, an airplane film not so different from one of this year's Best Picture nominees, Top Gun Maverick. One of its contenders, the war picture All Quiet on the Western Front, is a remake of the 1930 Academy Award winner. Newsreel footage captured the head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer, congratulating producer Carl Lemley. Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. Thanks very much. As the silent movie era was ending and the talkies beginning, it was Mayer who had dreamed up the idea of the Academy for Hollywood Land, as it was first known. He didn't want the film industry to be unionized, so he thought somehow we'll have this organization and we'll all just come to meetings and talk about our griefs and problems. Bruce Davis is a former CEO of the Academy and author of The Academy and the Award. He says in the late 1920s, writers, directors, actors, and other Academy members wanted to form their own guilds. He says they didn't trust Mayer's group of anti-union studio bigwigs. They were seen by the artists as tools of the producers. So the Academy had to finally agree to get out of the labor business entirely. Instead, the Academy focused on handing out Oscars, as the statuette was later nicknamed. Radio stations broadcast the ceremonies to movie fans captivated by the glitz and glamour. Hollywood crowns its king and queen of the year. They're the stars among stars. The affair is the highlight of the year for movie folks. In 1939, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American to win an Oscar for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. McDaniel rose from her seat at a segregated table to tearfully accept for Best Supporting Actress. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. And may I say thank you and God bless you. Over the years, the Oscars have included scandals and feuds like the famous rivalry between sisters Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland, who despised each other and vied for the Best Actress Oscar in 1942. The ceremonies continued during the infamous McCarthy era when many Hollywood writers were blacklisted as suspected communists. Here's what happened in 1957 to the winner of the Best Motion Picture Story Award. The envelope, please. The brave one, Robert Rich. Someone else accepted the award on his behalf, but then no one could find this guy. That's because he did not exist. Michael Shulman is author of the new book, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. He says Robert Rich was a pseudonym for screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. He had gone to prison for defying the House on American Activities Committee. He realized there was a contradiction that all of these people, suspected communists, were blacklisted, and yet... They were all working. They were writing movies under fake names, and now they were winning awards. Shulman says that was one of the many Hollywood scandals the Oscars have exposed. In 1953, the Oscars began being broadcast on television with host Bob Hope. Television, that's where movies go when they die. The ceremonies are notorious for running long, but in 1959, the show ended up 20 minutes short. Davis says MC Jerry Lewis had to ad-lib. Lewis started leading the orchestra. Then he invited all of the winners and participants from the show back up on stage, and they're feeling like idiots, so they started dancing with each other, and it still it wouldn't go, <laughs> wouldn't go off. 
And then people started sneaking off the stage. (laughs) Davis recalls when Charlie Chaplin, who started out in silent movies, won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1972. He had been almost driven out of the country because his politics were seen to be too far left for the American public. That's why Davis says it was so touching for Chaplin to be embraced by the film industry. Oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. The audience gave Chaplin a 12-minute standing ovation. The next year, the crowd booed when Marlon Brando sent Sasheen Littlefeather to the stage to decline his Best Actor award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. In 1974, the Oscars audience shrieked when gay activist Robert Opel dashed across the stage naked. The streaker prompted this response from presenter David Niven. Probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. In 1985, Best Actress winner Sally Field gave one of Oscar's most unforgettable speeches. I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. Shulman says there have been other cringy moments, like the opening number in 1989, when actor Rob Lowe sang a duet with a live-action Snow White. Shulman says the over-the-top opening was a flop for producer Alan Carr. He was essentially ostracized within days, and he never recovered. It destroyed his career, destroyed his life. The last decade, the Oscars had a racial reckoning after being criticized for not giving awards to actors and filmmakers of color. The Oscars So White movement led into the 2017 mix-up, says Davis. There was a rookie from Pricewaterhouse that year who was a little too enthusiastic about being backstage with all the stars and clearly took his mind off his job and handed the presenter the wrong envelope. Warren Beatty looked puzzled as Faye Dunaway announced the final winner of the night. La La Land producer Jordan Horowitz accepted the award surrounded by the cast. Then he returned to the mic. There's there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Last year, the winners were overshadowed by a confrontation by Best Actor nominee Will Smith and presenter Chris Rock. (laughs) Oh, wow! Wow! Will Smith just smacked out of me. Anything can happen during a live event, says Shulman. Whether it's a burst of anger with the slap or just something really moving, someone like really living their dream, boom, something happens that shocks your system a little bit. Waiting for surprises keeps audiences coming back to the Oscars year after year. Who knows what could happen this Sunday night? Mandalita Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. 
and from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be able to see the waning moon. Temperatures about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, more sunshine than we had today. Could be mostly sunny. Highs reaching the upper 40s to nearly 50 degrees. The weekend is looking mixed right now. This is 90.9 WBUR, 46 degrees at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this spring at newartcenter.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Millions of American households will see a sharp cut in SNAP benefits as the government's pandemic aid winds down. They are facing a massive shortage of specialized craft and trade workers in particular. The consequences of the cuts coming up on this Thursday, March 9th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, at least six people have died after a barrage of Russian missiles hit targets across Ukraine today. The attack knocked out operations at Europe's largest atomic power station. Much of America's nuclear arsenal is decades out of date, and there's a huge and urgent push to rebuild it. And scientists have mapped every one of the 548,000 connections in the brain of fruit fly larvae. But they're still far from repeating the feat in the brain of a fully grown fruit fly. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden traveled to Philadelphia today where he unveiled his $6.9 trillion budget. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the opening salvo in the high-stakes political fight over government funding and the debt ceiling. President Biden told supporters at the Philadelphia Union Hall that his budget reflects his values. I value everyone having an even shot, not just labor, but small business owners, farmers, and so many other people who hold the country together who have been basically invisible for a long time. The proposal includes spending on universal preschool, paid leave, and more child care funding. The White House also says the plan would reduce the deficit through tax hikes on the rich. The budget, however, has almost no chance of passing. It's more of a political document that Biden can point to during policy and political battles with Republicans. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. An American held in an Iranian prison has made an emotional appeal to President Biden to help secure his release. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, Siamak Namazi has been incarcerated for more than seven years. Siamak Namazi made his appeal during a telephone interview with CNN's Christian Amanpour. The dual Iranian-American businessman said he was speaking from Ward 4 of Iran's notorious Avin prison. Most likely his captors were closely monitoring anything he said. Namazi said he and two other American citizens in the prison feel abandoned by the Biden administration. I implore you, sir, put the lives and living of innocent Americans above all politics involved. 
and to just do what's necessary to end this nightmare and bring us home. Namazi says the U.S. has a great amount of leverage, and if Biden used it, they would be out of prison. Iranian officials have offered to swap prisoners with the U.S. in the past. Jackie Northam, NPR News. At a Senate hearing today, environmental officials answered lawmakers' questions about the recent derailment of a Norfolk Southern freight train in East Palestine, Ohio, that resulted in a chemical spill and fire. Rail CEO Alan Shaw pledging to clean up the mess. In opening remarks, meanwhile, EPA Administrator Deborah Shore said recent environmental testing has shown positive results. Since the fire was extinguished on February 8th, EPA monitors have not detected any volatile organic compounds above levels of health concerns. While EPA is encouraged by the data, we also recognize that the people of East Palestine still question the health and safety of their community and their loved ones. A bipartisan bill is in the works that would enhance federal regulations on trains and improve safety. Stocks turned sharply lower with the Dow closing down more than 500 points today amid fears of stronger than expected rate hikes from the Fed. The Dow was down 534 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. First Amendment advocates say Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is failing to make good on her promise to bring more transparency to the top office. Her administration rejected WBUR's request to obtain copies of confidential severance or settlement agreements that involve the governor's office. Justin Silverman is the executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition. I think Governor Healy has the opportunity to bring transparency to her office like she promised she would, but it's becoming more clear with every record's denial that she doesn't have any intention of doing so. Healy's staff says the governor's office is completely exempt from public records law. Even so, the office says it plans to voluntarily abide by the public records law going forward, but it says the new policy does not apply to documents created before Healy took office in January. The man who prosecutors say tried to open a door during a United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston will undergo a mental health evaluation. A Boston federal judge issued the ruling this afternoon during the detention hearing for Francisco Severo Torres of Lemonson. Passengers restrained Torres during Sunday's flight. Police say he had tampered with an emergency exit door and then attacked a flight attendant when he was confronted. He was arrested when the plane landed safely at Logan. Mobile sports betting starts tomorrow in Massachusetts. And on the eve of the launch, the state's gaming commission is investigating some gambling advertisements and it's being asked to protect children from sports betting marketing. State regulators are looking into three fan duel ads they say may be breaking the rules. In one of them, the online sports book promotes using credit cards to place bets that is illegal in this state. First Assistant Attorney General Pat Moore told commissioners today there are ways to prevent kids from seeing gambling messages. There are a number of social media platforms, so-called connected TV, like YouTube TV, Hulu, for example, that allow you to exclude audiences under 21. Where that capability exists, the operators should be required to use it. Moore says the Gaming Commission should also review sports betting promotions before they go live. That would include things such as free play offers. There's more potential trouble for Bay State College in Boston. The for-profit Back Bay Institution could be evicted. Its landlord claims the school owes it more than $720,000 in rent and fees. Bay State says it's been overcharged. The matter could go to trial in April if a resolution isn't reached. The college is also appealing a plan to withdraw its accreditation. 
in the forecast maybe a rain shower early tonight should be cloudy overnight or at least partly cloudy down around 30 for a low tomorrow pretty nice lots of sunshine highs about 48 degrees 46 now in boston at 507 we're funded by you our listeners and by iDrive with remote pc providing remote access to pcs macs and servers from anywhere designed to assist those working from home more at remotepc.com This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Some 16 million American households are seeing a sharp cut in how much they can spend on food this month. Temporary pandemic assistance came to an end in February, which means benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, are dropping by about $90 a month for individuals and $250 or more for families. The cut comes as food prices in the U.S. continue to rise, and without the extra help, many people will go hungry. Unfortunately, I have known hunger. I'm pretty familiar with hunger, and it's not a good feeling, you know. That's Teresa Calderas. She's 63 and lives in Colorado Springs. Calderas says the extra SNAP benefits allowed her to eat right for the first time in many years. Before that, I've run out of money pretty much for the middle of the month. Calderas has been disabled for many years. I have chronic pain. I have arthritis, fibromyalgia, and degenerative disc disease. So I'm just not able to work. And I was getting about $20 a month. And the extra amount that I ended up getting was about 280 a month, and that helped me tremendously. I could eat more like when I felt like I needed to eat. And she's noticed a big difference in her overall health. You know, I feel better. I have a little more energy. My nails look better. <laughs> they were real split, cracked, and dried. And I noticed having eaten fresh vegetables and meats, you know, they look a lot better. They're not pretty, but they're healthier. And I think your your nails say a lot about what your health is like. Even leading up to the cut in her SNAP benefits this month, Calderas was struggling under the rising cost of living. When the rent and the inflation went up, it really hurt, you know, buying a gallon of milk. A lot of people don't really give it another thought, but... There are lots of us out here who can't buy a gallon of milk when we need it. And so I'm just going to have to go back to not eating very much, about a meal a day. But even while facing her own struggles, Caldera says she's more worried about how some other families will fare with fewer SNAP benefits. I worry about, you know, mothers with children. And the poverty is impacting them so much more than people realize. And she's right to worry if you ask a number of experts, including pediatrician Megan Sandel. Think about what SNAP is. It's the largest anti-hunger program in the United States. It's an evidence-based tool for ensuring families put food on the table. She's co-director of the Boston Medical Center's Grow Clinic, which focuses on treating malnutrition issues in kids. Let me just translate to you kind of who's a, a typical family that I see. They're working sometimes two jobs. They have this, you know, young child that's not growing the way you would expect on the growth curve. And the mom will break down in tears and say, 
I just got my rent bill. Landlord is increasing it. I can't keep up. And now I know that there's going to be one less tool in the toolbox to try and help this kid grow and get back on the growth curve. What makes children, young people, particularly vulnerable in moments such as this? You know, you think about kind of what is really important around growth. In the first three years of life, you are in the most rapid growth period in terms of brain and body. And so when you're missing out on key nutrition, it's hard to catch up. It it literally can be situations where we get to kids late and they're starting to struggle in school or they're not reading on time or other things. And so We've seen this before. Our research showed that during the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, when there was a boost, they were able to see a benefit. And then when that boost was reduced, we saw kids stop growing, being in fair to poor health, and their caregivers being in fair to poor health. So this is really a family issue. What types of long-term effects can hunger have on children as they grow? So I I like to think about it in three ways. I think we know that there are physical health implications. You're not able to fight off viruses as well. You're not going to be able to do as well with your immune system. And we also know that there can be developmental effects, right? You're um, not walking on time. You're not running on time. You're not learning to read on time. Um, And then I think mostly there are huge mental health effects, both for, again, kids and their, their parents, anxiety, depression, lost productivity at work, lost productivity in school. And so I think the good news is there's a solution, right? We know that SNAP needs to cover the cost of a healthy diet. It doesn't really do that now, and it's not going to do it if you end up rolling it back further. But Congress is going to take up the farm bill. There are ways in which you could really start to see covering the real cost of, of food, and we could see the benefits of that over the next generations. I wonder, what do you recommend for parents and other caregivers who might be really struggling and be harmed acutely by these latest cuts or being asked, in effect, to do more with a lot less. Yeah. It is really an ecosystem approach. I work at Boston Medical Center. We partner with our Greater Boston Food Bank. We are able to provide emergency food. We can lean in ourselves. It really is that we need to partner with policymakers on the federal and the state level to really bring additional resources. So so families should know there are great safety net hospitals and great safety net community health centers and, and food banks out there. But we really need to focus not just on the short-term solution, but the long-term solutions to make sure families aren't choosing between rent, medicine, and food. If you could enact any law or program or structure right now that would have a meaningful impact on fighting child hunger, where would you begin? You know, the Farm Bill is a huge huge bill that is considered every five years. And there is a real opportunity for Congress to strengthen and improve SNAP, not just to to roll it back, but to actually look at it as this evidence-based solution to reducing food insecurity and promoting health. And the way you do that is actually to boost SNAP benefits so they reflect the real cost of a healthy diet across the country. My counseling to families to have fruits and vegetables and, you know, dairy and eggs are meaningless if their actual, you know, ability to purchase them is reduced. And so there are ways in which we could actually use the pandemic era boost as an example of how we improve the program and really create health equity for children and adults across the country. 
Dr. Megan Sandel, co-director of the Boston Medical Center's Grow Clinic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Juana. Ready for the clocks to spring forward? Daylight saving time begins this Sunday, and that means many of us may miss out on some sleep as we lose an hour. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on what you can do beginning now to make the transition a little easier and why there's a debate on Capitol Hill over whether to make daylight saving time permanent. Daylight saving has a nice ring to it. And to spring forward, that sounds kind of cheerful. But the truth is that our bodies really don't like the abrupt change. It can take us days to adjust to darker mornings. And as Jennifer Martin, the president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, explains, the shift to more light in the evening can leave us out of sync with our body's natural rhythms. Human circadian rhythms are very closely linked to the rising and setting of the sun. And what happens with daylight savings time is our internal clock is not as well aligned with the rising and setting of the sun. The potential benefits of daylight saving time may have more to do with the economy. Lawmakers in the Senate who have reintroduced a bill to make daylight saving time permanent point to an analysis that found when clocks fall back in the fall, spending goes down. Whereas more light in the evening, ushered in by the springtime change, can prompt people to go out more to shop or eat. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida says the twice-a-year clock change is stupid. He posted this message yesterday in support of his Sunshine Protection Act. We're one of the few countries on Earth that continues to do this ritual of springing forward and falling back and changing our clock twice a year. That makes no sense. It's time to end it. Lots of people, including many scientists and doctors, agree that the time change is annoying and disruptive. But rather than making daylight saving time permanent, as lawmakers want to do, both the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the American Medical Association support instead a move to permanent standard time to preserve morning light. Jennifer Martin and her sleep medicine colleagues have planned a trip to Capitol Hill in April. One of the things that we want to talk with lawmakers about is we agree that abolishing seasonal time change is important, but the way to do that is to stay on standard time because light in the morning is what's really important here. That is what's best for long-term health. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine points to a bunch of studies that show the acute transition from standard time to daylight saving time is linked to more cardiovascular events, mood disorders, and even more car crashes, something I learned firsthand when last spring, just after the spring forward clock change, I accidentally backed into my neighbor's car. I asked Martin if my fender bender was surprising. No, you became part of the statistics. When we're sleep deprived, we don't do well. And, you know, I will share that I have a teenager and I am not looking forward to getting him up for school on Monday morning. To prepare for the time change, one strategy is to wind down a little earlier and minimize exposure to bright light at night. Also, on Saturday, try to wake up one hour earlier. This may help ease your transition. Alice Aubrey. NPR News. The human brain has more than 80 billion nerve cells. 
and each one has about 10,000 connections. That's like 800 trillion connections. So scientists who hope to one day map the human brain are starting small with fruit fly larva brains, which are surprisingly similar. Stay tuned to hear more in just a few minutes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, Norfolk Southern Rail CEO and others testified during a Senate committee hearing on the fiery train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Also, there's a huge and urgent push to rebuild the nation's nuclear arsenal, but there are not enough workers with the skills and mechanical aptitude to do the work. Those stories are still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. The Dow lost more than 1.5% today, 544 points to close at 32,255. S&P fell more than one and three quarters percent to end the session at 39.18. The Nasdaq dropped 2% to finish at 11,338. A nearly century-old movie theater off Moody Street in Waltham will reopen as part of a new performing arts center. The Embassy Cinema closed last fall, a casualty of the pandemic. Tuesday, the owner of Boston Rhythmic, a rhythmic gymnastics school, in Watertown acquired the building. Smardanta Albeck says that she will reopen the cinema with two movie screens. The remaining space will become classrooms for dance, theater, and gymnastics. Albeck's calling the facility the Embassy Performing Arts Center. This is WBUR. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, more sunshine than we had today. Could reach the high 40s. The weekend so far is looking mixed. Mobile sports betting begins tomorrow in the state. Start your day tomorrow with WBUR to find out about the guardrails to prevent gambling addiction. That's tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Russia launched more than 80 missiles and drones at Ukraine today, including at least six advanced hypersonic missiles, according to the Ukrainians. Ukraine says it's the first time Russia has used so many of these missiles in one attack. At least six people died and power was knocked out in several regions, including to Europe's largest atomic energy plant, which is occupied by Russia. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is following these developments from Kyiv. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Ari. Over the last year, Russia's launched a lot of missile strikes at Ukraine, but not like this. Tell us more about today's strike. Sure. For one thing, uh, this is the first time in at least a month that we've had this kind of large-scale attack. I was actually surprised early this morning when I heard explosions outside the window because it had been so long. 
another difference is the number of missiles that Russia launched today, more than 80 missiles and drones at Ukraine today. And another difference is the variety of missiles that were used. Um, Ukrainian Air Force spokesman Yuri Ignat uh, uh, spoke to reporters about this. And he's saying here that it was the, it was the first time he had seen so many kinds of missiles used at the same time, including six hypersonic cruise missiles with nuclear capabilities. Tell us more about those specific missiles. What do you know about them? The Russians call this missile a kinjal, which means dagger in Russian. Ukraine says Russia has launched these before, but not this many of them all at once. In Russian, President Vladimir Putin has been bragging about these missiles for a couple of years, saying that they travel 10 times the speed of sound. Uh, now, Ukraine's air defenses are very good, and, and over the last few months, they've been successfully intercepting many other missiles launched by the Russians, but not the Kinjal. Uh, analysts are asking why Russia would launch these missiles, because they're expensive and the supply is limited. Uh, but Ari, let's remember that the ground war for Russia has not gone well, and perhaps uh, this, uh, this attack today is some sort of message that Russia is still in the fight. What kind of damage did these attacks do around the country? Well, at least six people died, five of them in the western district of Lviv. You know, you've been there, I've been there. I mean, Lviv borders Poland, which is a NATO country, uh, completely, you know, as far away from the from the front line as you can get. Uh, infrastructure like the power grid was hit in Kiev and other cities. And the mayor of Kiev said that about 40% of the city had lost power at, at one point because of these attacks. Uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky also weighed in. He wrote on his Telegram page that it had been a difficult night and morning and that the Russians had, quote, returned to their miserable tactics to try to intimidate Ukrainians. And tell us more about the Zaporizhia power plant, because some of the missiles knocked out power there. Do you know what the situation is? So the power there has since been restored, and there was a backup diesel de generators running when the power went out. Um, the plant needs power to run the pumps that supply cooling water to the reactors. Uh, and this isn't the first time the plant has lost power, but this has happened uh, enough times now that today's power cut produced this furious response from Rafael Mariano Grossi, who's the director general of the UN's Atomic Energy Agency. I am astonished by the complacency. Yes, the complacency. What are we doing to prevent this from happening? Each time we are rolling a dice. And if we allow this to continue, then one day our luck will run out. So, you know, Ari Grossi has repeatedly asked for the area around the plant to be demilitarized because each time there's an attack or a power cut, there's a chance of a nuclear accident. And the consequences of that would extend far beyond Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reporting from Kyiv. Thank you. You're welcome, Ari. Scientists are still a long way from creating a detailed map of the human brain, so they have been focusing on simpler structures. NPR's John Hamilton reports on an effort to trace every connection in the brain of a fruit fly larva. A brain is more than just a collection of cells. 
Joshua Vogelstein of Johns Hopkins University puts it this way. The brain is the physical object that makes us who we are. To understand that object, you need to know how it's wired, what scientists call its connectome. But Vogelstein says that's hard in a human brain, which has more than 80 billion nerve cells. And each one has about 10,000 connections. So in the 1970s, scientists began mapping the connections in worms and tadpoles with just a few hundred neurons. Now Vogelstein and an international team have mapped a brain with more than 3,000 neurons and more than 500,000 connections. It's from the larva of a fruit fly, or Drosophila. The larval Drosophila is closer in many regards to a human brain than the other ones. There's regions that correspond to decision-making, there's regions that correspond to learning, there's regions that correspond to navigation. Vogelstein says that, like a human, this insect has a brain with a left side and a right side. One surprise that led to actually a follow-up paper that we've already written is how similar the left and the right sides are. In human brains, the right and left sides can have very different wiring. For example, the circuits involved in speech and language tend to be on the left, while circuits that recognize faces tend to be on the right. Vogelstein says the larval fruit fly connectome will help scientists study things like learning and memory. Or look at differences across gender, or differences across species, or differences across developmental stages. This is the landmark first reference that we can use to compare everything else. The finding, which appears in the journal Science, shows how hard it is to map an entire brain, even in an insect. Vogelstein says the team began by slicing a single tiny brain into thousands of very thin sections. You don't screw it up at all, because if you make one mistake, you have to basically throw out the entire brain and start over again. The team used an electron microscope to capture an image of each slice. Vogelstein says tracing the connections took powerful computers and specialized analytical tools. They'll work on thousands or millions or maybe 100 million connections, but not 10,000 trillion connections. Roughly the number of connections in a human brain. Nuno Marcerico da Costa of the Allen Institute in Seattle is part of a team working on a mouse connectome. We started by trying to map the connectivity of a millimeter cube of mouse cortex, which is kind of a grain of sand, but has one billion connections, 100,000 neurons, and four kilometers of cable. Dacosta says it took 12 days just to slice up that one tiny cube, which represents only about one five-hundredth of a complete mouse brain. Even so, Dacosta says mapping more complex brains is worth the effort. Eventually, he says, it should help scientists understand how a human brain can be affected by disorders like schizophrenia. If your radio breaks, if someone has a wiring diagram of your radio, they'll be in a better position to fix it. Takashita says mapping the human connectome will also help scientists answer basic questions, like how we learn and why we behave the way we do. Every idea, every memory, every movement, every decision you ever made comes from the activity of neurons in your brain. And... This activity is an expression of this structure. In other words, the wiring diagram that makes us who we are. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the Edmonton Oilers. The puck drops at 7.30. Red Sox beat the Yankees 11-7 today in spring training play in Tampa. The Sox remain the only undefeated team in the Grapefruit League. This is WBUR 46 degrees now at 5.30. 
WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with the Great Leap, a friendship game of basketball amidst turmoil at Tiananmen Square, turns into a different game through March 19th. LyricStage.com. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden unveiled his proposed $6.9 trillion budget today. Detailing his plans in a speech in Philadelphia, Biden says his plan would increase military spending and fund a wide range of new social programs, and it includes higher taxes on the wealthy. And he says the plan would cut government deficits by some $3 trillion over the next decade. And Pierre Scott Horsley has more. The cut the president's budget talks about is a, is a relative cut. Keep in mind, congressional forecasters have said the federal government is on track to add about $20 trillion in debt over the next decade. Biden's budget would trim that to just $17 trillion in additional debt. So you're talking about an ocean of red ink that, that gets to translate to a slightly smaller ocean of red ink. Uh, and that's all on top of the $31 trillion in debt that the federal government already has. And Pierre Scott Horsley. Biden's budget, though, has almost no chance of passing through the GOP-controlled House. The Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration is investigating Norfolk Southern over working conditions in the aftermath of its train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Reed Frazier reports workers have reported health problems since helping repair the track. The derailment involved nearly a dozen tank cars filled with hazardous chemicals. Johnny Longs with the American Rail System Federation, which represents workers, brought in to repair the site. We have members experiencing nausea. Uh, headaches, eye and throat irritation, skin rashes, and respiratory problems. Long says workers were given minimal information about chemicals they'd be working around and only N95 masks as protection. Norfolk Southern says it had hazardous materials professionals on site in East Palestine to oversee worker safety and ensure the use of proper equipment. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some addiction experts in Massachusetts are watching what they call a truth serum moment in the opioid crisis. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains. The federal government has ended tight rules on who could prescribe buprenorphine, a medication many call the gold standard for treating patients addicted to opioids. But were those rules just an excuse that masked hesitation or discrimination? Dr. Sarah Wakeman is with Mass General Brigham. It has been convenient for folks that really don't want to provide this treatment to be able to say that they simply can't. But I've been very pleased to see that already. I think we're seeing excitement and energy around creating a transformation. Wakeman says the change could mean more primary care doctors, obstetricians, and emergency room clinicians will treat patients addicted to opioids. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Allergy season is arriving early in the Boston area. Researchers say that's because global warming is making winters shorter. The climate research nonprofit Climate Central found that allergy season in Boston is now about two weeks longer than it was back in 1970. Caroline Sokol works at the Allergy and Clinical Immunology Unit of Mass General Hospital. She says most of her patients used to start allergy medications around St. Patrick's Day. 
with changes in the seasons, instead of waiting till St. Patrick's Day, we're looking at maybe starting up in the beginning of March, end of February. Sokol says many of her patients find allergy relief by wearing face coverings outdoors. The budget President Biden proposed today includes funding to help replace the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges over the Cape Cod Canal. The administration wants to provide $350 million a year and a total of $600 million overall. State officials estimate the total price tag for the project to be between 3 and $4 billion. Twice in the last year, the federal government rejected a grant application for more than $1 billion to help fund the project. Governor Moore Healy says the state will apply again. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. The off chance of a rain shower tonight should be partly cloudy overnight, down around 30 degrees for a low. Tomorrow could be the mildest day of the week and possibly the sunniest as well. Mostly sunny skies could reach toward 48 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 46 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The head of Norfolk Southern Railroad offered an apology today for the train derailment and release of toxic chemicals last month in East Palestine, Ohio. I want to begin today by expressing how deeply sorry I am for the impact this derailment has had on the residents of East Palestine and the surrounding communities. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw appeared before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. NPR's David Shaper covered the hearing and joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So, I mean, in that bit of tape we just heard, it sounds like Shaw was a bit remorseful. Mm -hmm. What else did he say about how the company's response has been to the derailment? Well, he, he actually apologized a few times and repeatedly said that he is determined to make this right. Norfolk Southern will clean the site safely thoroughly, and with urgency. You have my personal commitment. Shaw says that the company has already spent more than $20 million on the cleanup and the recovery so far, adding that that's just a down payment and Norfolk Southern will spend whatever it takes and will be there as long as it takes to make East Palestine and the surrounding communities whole again. Wait, but how specific was he about that? I mean, did he say that Norfolk Southern will pay for everything, like from the cleanup to hotel rooms to health care? Like what? Well, you know, that's the rub, Elsa. He uh, repeatedly told the panel that the company is committed to making things right and reimbursing area residents. But when pinned down, he refused to commit to compensation for specific kinds of expenses and losses. As in this exchange, when he was pressed by Massachusetts Democrat Ed Markey on whether the company would compensate homeowners for their diminished property values. Senator, I'm committed to do what's right. That is the right thing to do. These are the people who are innocent victims, Mr. Shaw. These people were just there at home, and all of a sudden, their small businesses, their homes, 
are forever going to have been diminished in value. I mean, the thing is, David, Norfolk Southern has been sharply criticized for, at least in the past, opposing stronger safety regulations for freight rail, right? Like, so did Shaw address that? Yeah, he did. Uh, Shaw repeatedly cited Norfolk Southern's safety record as one of the best uh, in, in the industry. Although we should note that the company had another train derailed this morning in Alabama. No one was hurt in that incident. The train wasn't carrying hazardous materials. But Shaw did acknowledge that clearly the current safety mechanisms in place were not enough. He said his company supports efforts to make tank cars stronger, to increase training for first responders, and to add to the network of trackside detectors that can alert train crews to problems before a train derails. But again, when pressed, Shaw says he is committed to the legislative intent to make rail safer, but did not specifically endorse the new bipartisan Railway Safety Act that's been proposed by Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown and Republican J.D. Vance. And then Vance noted the opposition within his own party to additional regulations, and he called Republicans out on it. I believe that we are the party of working people, but it's time to be the party of working people. We have a choice. Are we for big business and big government, or are we for the people of East Palestine? It's a time for choosing. Let's make the right one. And real quick, David, what about the concerns about contaminated dirt around the derailment site and where that dirt is getting shipped now? Yeah, you know, some people have been critical of the EPA for briefly halting these ship shipments and leaving mounds of this stuff around, uh, while others are critical of, of shipping this contaminated waste through in two other states. EPA Regional Administrator Deborah Shore says the brief pause was to make sure the shipping was being done safely and to the proper disposal sites, but she admits communication could have been better. That is NPR's David Shaper. Thank you, David. Thank you, Elsa. Russia and China have been modernizing their nuclear arsenals for years, but much of the U.S. nuclear stockpile is decades old. The government is now ramping up efforts to replace or rebuild thousands of nuclear warheads and the missiles, bombers, and subs that carry them. It's an enormous task, and as Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, the hardest part is finding workers. There's a sprawling gray factory on the very edge of Kansas City, Missouri, busy night and day making parts for nuclear warheads. That's the door to the least secure part of this plant, Eric Wollerman's office. He runs the Kansas City National Security Campus, where 80% of the non-nuclear parts for U.S. nuclear warheads are made. It's painstaking work. Every single component that we make is safe, secure, and reliable because it's going into a nuclear weapon. And this work is picking up speed. From Wollerman's office windows here, you can see shuttle buses full of workers arriving from satellite parking. The lot is full. Wollerman says the plant's hired 1,600 people just this year, and it's not nearly enough. By fall, Wollerman hopes to employ almost triple the number of workers this plant had just a few years ago. That would be 7,000 people. He needs them, like yesterday, to help upgrade and replace weapons designed and built for the Cold War. We've kind of kicked the can down the road to the point where, you know, game on. This has got to happen and it's got to happen now. Kelsey Hardigan describes herself as a lifelong nuke nerd. She's at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and says this goes way beyond warheads. The U.S. is replacing all its intercontinental ballistic missiles, stealth bombers, and nuclear submarines, too. The price tag is likely to top $1 trillion. 
It's an enormous job that's going to be spread out across most of the country. In layman's term, um, really, really big. You're looking at at least 25 states plus the District of Columbia. But honestly, that is probably a pretty severe undercount. And there are monumental problems. The supply chain, for one. Remember when you couldn't get toilet paper? Well, the government is having a hard time sourcing nuclear-qualified piping and safety gear for a nuclear warhead core factory it's trying to build in South Carolina. Inflation is jacking up the price of everything, and then there's staffing. They are facing a massive shortage of specialized craft and trade workers in particular. Every bit of this work has to be done by U.S. citizens who can pass security screening. No outsourcing, no offshoring. And it requires skills and mechanical aptitude many Americans lack. That's where this workshop comes in. So this is the Kansas City Engineering Zone, and it's an urban build space for four of our uh, urban high school first robotics teams. Martha McCabe directs the Casey STEM Alliance. Today, she's minding four teams of brainy-looking high schoolers feverishly building robots from scratch. The shop is spartan, no windows, just bright fluorescent lights, and lots of industrial equipment donated by the Kansas City National Security Campus, the local nuclear weapons parts factory. All this equipment, you have drill presses, you have lathes, you have a horizontal bandsaw. The factory's lost many of its most experienced workers to retirement recently. It currently has 600 openings. A smart kid with a high school diploma, one able and willing to pin down a security clearance, can make at least $31 an hour, starting with lots of room to move up. McCabe says that kind of job can be life-changing. Oh, 100% a path out of poverty, and not only for the individual, but for their family. So the U.S. faces a major manufacturing challenge, rebuilding its entire nuclear arsenal. And that can't happen without tens of thousands more American factory workers willing to commit their careers to building weapons that almost no one wants to use. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called reports of book bans in Florida a hoax. But for one school district in the Tampa Bay area, it's real. As Carrie Sheridan reports from member station WUSF, students have been fighting the removal of Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye. And a warning, this story contains a mention of sexual violence. It was standing room only at the Pinellas County School Board meeting in mid-February. Near the door, sandwiched in with a crowd of students, was Largo High English teacher Heidi Arndt. I feel like I'm living on the pages of a dystopian novel, and it is a frightening time to be a teacher, and there is a big slew of our students right there. She points to dozens of students filling the seats in the school board chambers, waiting for their turn to speak. There is irony in banning books when so many of the greatest works of literature warn us of the repercussions of doing so. I believe that the decision to ban the book was made hastily and without the proper procedures. Even though others may not want to read this in public, as young humans, some of us who will be adults in less than a year, we are capable of engaging with these challenging ideas. Those were high school students Hannah Ippolito, Andrew Larson, and Prisha Shirdawala. At issue are two pages of The Bluest Eye, a novel first published in 1970. Those passages describe a father raping his daughter. 
the parent who brought the complaint didn't come to this meeting. Instead, Michelle still voiced her concerns in a YouTube video. I was so shocked that any adult would expose 15-year-olds to such explicit descriptions of illegal activities that I had no response. In the video, she described the school as promoting Marxist theories and the book as their final piece of indoctrination in AP IB 11th grade English. This one complaint caused the school district to remove the book soon after. District leaders say it was because of a new law known as HB 1467. It spells out the felony charges school librarians could face if they allow any books that are pornographic or harmful to minors. The Florida Department of Education made a training video urging staff to, quote, err on the side of caution when picking books. Here's an excerpt. If you would not be comfortable reading the material in a public setting, then you should lean towards not making the material available in a public school library for children. Pinellas County School Board lawyer David Kapersky said Morrison's book was pulled because employees were heeding the state's instructions. And so we now have to follow that because, as I said, that has the force of law at this point. Among those addressing the board in mid-February was 16-year-old Eliza Lane. She pointed to legal arguments for keeping the bluest eye on shelves at schools. For one, the same law, she says, requires a book's literary merit on the whole to be considered. And the bluest eye was banned, to my knowledge, for pornographic content. Pornography is defined in these guidelines as a depiction of erotic behavior intended to cause sexual excitement. That is not the purpose of those passages in The Bluest Eye. It is to shock and horrify readers into empathy for this character and to help us to realize the flaws in our own society. The students' complaints may have had an effect. District leaders said this week they're working on a new process for reviewing books and that they'll re-examine the decision to remove The Bluest Eye in the months ahead. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Largo, Florida. Coming up next, in snow-covered stretches of northern California, there's no spring grass for cows to munch on and stranded cattle are going hungry. So local ranchers have teamed up with state fire officials and the Coast Guard for an unusual rescue operation. You can hear more about it after this short break. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Also coming up, before movie theaters had digital projectors, staff had to loop up reels of film and start them at just the right time. Bob Mondello's story is still ahead on WBUR. Also, what's in President Biden's newly proposed budget? We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The MBTA says ferry service connecting East Boston to downtown Boston will resume March 27th. The East Boston Ferry Pilot Program launched last fall and shut down for the winter. It had been set to resume March 1st, but the T delayed the date, expecting warmer weather in just a couple of weeks. Boston Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the Edmonton Oilers. The game starts at 7.30. The Red Sox are holding on as the only undefeated Major League Baseball team in spring training. Today, the Sox made it even sweeter because they beat the Yankees 11 to seven in Tampa. Boston got six home runs. Right fielder Narcisco Crook was good for two of them. In the forecast overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures about 30. Tomorrow should be a beautiful day, sunny, dry, and milder up around the high 40s. 
WVUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts and Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the state shut down for COVID exactly three years ago. Leaders in healthcare, education, and social justice join the show to reflect on how we've endured and how much the world has changed. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. California has been buried by record-breaking snowfall this winter. And some parts of the state that rarely see much snow have gotten loads of it. Every single morning, it's another foot. It's like this ultimate groundhog day. Humboldt County Supervisor Michelle Bushnell is a cattle rancher in the far north of the state. She says lots of cows in the area are going hungry because of all the snow. The cows have absolutely no feed. No grass. There's no grass showing. She started calling around to check in on local ranchers. One rancher said, I haven't been able to get to my cows for eight days. I haven't been able to get my to my cows for five days. And then I called our sheriff, our local sheriff, and I said, you've got to help. We've got to do something here. What she told me is that she talked to a rancher. His name's John Rice. And they said in the 80s, there was a similar snowfall. And the Coast Guard actually flew hay out to some of the, the remote ranches. Humboldt County Sheriff William Hansel says he then called up the Coast Guard to ask if they could fly hay to hungry cows. And by midday Sunday, Operation Hay Drop was a go. Rancher Robert Puga raises purebred Angus cattle in neighboring Trinity County. He says he was eager for the help. I said, absolutely, put us on the list. I'm running out of hay fast and the cattle were in bad shape. The state's firefighting agency joined in too. Along with the Coast Guard, they gathered the coordinates of stranded herds, then helicopter out looking for cows. Here's Sheriff Hansel again. The pilots are looking for essentially the tracks in the snow. They'll drop the hay in the area where they are. And what they found is the cows, they'll start coming out from under the trees and going towards that hay as soon as the helicopter takes off. Operation Hay Drop covers about 2,500 head of cattle. And so far, it's been a success, according to rancher Robert Puga. Because if it wasn't for them, I guarantee you 110%, there'd be thousands of cattle that are dying. Thousands. But this harsh winter isn't over yet. There's even more snow in the forecast tonight. Before he became a film critic, NPR's Bob Mondello worked for a chain of movie theaters. He spent a lot of time in projection booths back then, and it had been a while since Bob climbed those stairs. But on a return visit, the first thing he discovered is that things sound different. This is the sound I remember. The purr of a celluloid film strip running through a projector, a purr that is actually 24 clicks per second, one each time the shutter closes so that another frame of film can advance. Each frame has to stop briefly in front of the light source, or all you'd see when you look at the screen is a blur. This is how film was first projected by the Lumiere brothers in 1895 and how everyone saw film for the next 104 years. It's been the subject of movies, from a silent comedy where Buster Keaton plays a projectionist who dreams himself up onto the screen, to the Oscar-winning Cinema Paradiso, where a little boy falls in love with movies in the projection booth. Alfredo, bellissimo! Bravo, Alfredo! 
I could identify. When I was working at Roth Theatres in the 1970s, the sound of the projector starting up seemed to me like an overture at a musical. But it's a sound that mostly doesn't exist anymore at the multiplex. In fact, to record the bit I used at the beginning, I had to ask the American Film Institute to bring projectionist Keith Madden to its Silver Theatre from a museum to thread the film and show me how. Do you want me to talk and thread at the same time? I can do that. There are sprocket holes on the film that align with sprocket teeth here, and you, you get them on there. You have to align them perfectly. Madden, who is now with the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History and Culture, got his first job as a projectionist in the 1970s, when film was still being played on 20-minute reels. That meant alternating between two side-by-side projectors three times an hour. If you do it right, you go seamlessly from the last frame of the outgoing reel to the first frame of the incoming reel. Doing it right was tricky, though, involving a cue mark on screen and quick reflexes. You had to just completely get into the zen of it. You to stare at the screen. The cue marks were a sixth of a second in the upper right-hand corner. A sixth of a second is about the time it takes you to do kind of a normal blink. So if you had a normal blink, you could have, oh, did I just miss that? (laughs) And until you learn the film, you wouldn't know. And one of the worst things for a projectionist was to get emotionally involved in the content. In a horror movie, that used to happen to me. Somebody would jump out with an axe and, oh, you'd miss the cue mark. Later, they developed a platter system where a whole film could be strung together on one big reel, which was better. But the actual revolution came in 1999, when a few movie theaters started trying out digital projectors. Cinematographer Harris Savitas told NPR back then about seeing one work for the first time. I felt like we're using horses, and we just saw the first car go by and kind of don't know what it is or what it's going to do for us, but it it just seems interesting, better, different. That was a minority view at the time. Nobody much liked digital at first. The image wasn't sharp. It was like early TV. Some scenes even looked pixelated. But the projectors got better and smaller. And by 2011, the National Association of Theater Owners estimated that 41% of U.S. movie theaters had converted to digital. Today, it's very close to 100%, says Keith Madden. Now, if you go to a typical multiplex in the booth, In the back corner of a lot of these places, you'll see piles of rusted metal parts of film projectors. Let's go instead to an atypical multiplex, Landmark's 8-screen E Street Theater in downtown Washington, D.C. In what is otherwise a state-of-the-art digital projection booth, it still has one working film projector. We barely ever use this anymore. We maybe play two three 35-millimeter prints a year. Tom Beto, formerly of Landmark Theatres, said this while standing in a booth that connects seven of the eight theatres in the complex, a hallway with digital projectors spaced along it, and noisy fans blowing the heat away from the powerful xenon bulbs that are needed to light up movie screens the size of tennis courts. The only moving part in a digital projector is the fan. It's otherwise just a light source and a computer. Every projector has a little touchscreen interface here. It basically shows the playlist uh, of what you're going to play. It has the ads, the trailers, and the film. Um, So all I would have to do to play this film right now is hit the play button. The lights will come down, the sound will turn on, and then at the end of the playlist, the lights come up, goes back to house music. So So literally one button. Show me how you thread up one of these uh, (laughs) One of these digital projectors. (laughs) So we don't thread anything up. Uh, We get the movies in these little gray boxes, big silver hard drives. Trailers come on this too? Yes, so every week Deluxe will send what's called a trail mix drive, 
In the old days, even with platters, you needed a couple of projectionists to run this place. Eight screens, staggered showtimes, cleaning sprocket teeth with a toothbrush between showings, focusing, dealing with bulky projectors. It would usually be two full-time projectionists and then two or three part-time projectionists. What do you got now? Uh, <laughs> we have, everything's automated, so you basically only need to have projectionists there on Thursdays, which is the day that we do the changeover, and everything will start automatically for the whole week. For the week? Yeah. Not every day they have to push a button? A manager has to come up here and turn everything on. And that would be just as true if this were a 26-plex. Miraculous in its way, the new normal in thousands of theaters around the world is state-of-the-art, efficient, a 21st-century technological marvel. So just one more question. If somebody came up here and wanted to be amazed by something, what would you show them? <laughs> I'd probably thread up the 35-millimeter projector. <laughs> of course he would. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow, more sunshine than we had today could reach the high 40s. And then for the weekend, a chance of light snow and rain early on Saturday. Lots of clouds around. High temperatures about 40 degrees. Sunday should be different. Bright sunshine rising to just about 43 degrees. 44 now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 559. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden releases his proposed budget and it signals a direct challenge to Republicans who want to cut spending. It increases taxes on oil and gas companies, hikes the corporate tax rate, and lets Medicare negotiate drug prices. It would also cut the budget deficit by $3 trillion over the next decade. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, Biden's budget coming up. Also, the dirty secret about credit card rewards programs. A Stanford finance professor says credit card perks are being subsidized by people who have less. And the federal government has lifted restrictions on a medication that many patients dealing with drug addiction say has saved their life. It's the best thing they could have ever come out with. I don't think I ever even had a desire to use heroin or, since I've been taking We'll take a closer look at whether the drug's use will remain limited because of discrimination in the healthcare field. 
It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Stocks sank ahead of critical new data on the U.S. economy. The Dow falling more than 500 points today. The S&P dropped 1.8 percent. As NPR's David Gurr reports, investors will get a fuller picture of how the U.S. economy is doing tomorrow. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell wants to see the totality of the data before he decides on the Fed's next move. That's what he told lawmakers. And a big piece of that's the jobs numbers for the month of February, which the Labor Department releases on Friday. If the jobs market strength continues to exceed expectations, Powell and his colleagues may feel compelled to raise interest rates by half a percentage point, a larger uptick than last time. The uncertainties kept investors on edge all week, and it's hit bank stocks especially hard. They're adjusting to higher interest rates. Bank of America shares fell by about 6%, and J.P. Morgan Chase by almost 5.5%. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Taking a closer look at the numbers, the Nasdaq was down more than 2% today, falling 237 points. The S&P 500 dropped 1.85% or 73 points. President Biden today laid out his $6.9 trillion budget proposal in Philadelphia. Among other things, the spending package aimed to cut deficits by $3 trillion over the next 10 years and raise taxes on the wealthiest Americans and corporations to pay for it. In addition to a new tax on billionaires, the plan would up taxes for those making more than $400,000 a year while expanding the child tax credit. The president's plan, which is already being rejected by the GOP, would also try to make a key Medicare trust fund solvent for the next 25 years. Israeli police say a Palestinian gunman has shot and wounded at least three people in Tel Aviv, including one who is in serious condition. The Palestinian militant group Hamas has praised the attack, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The shooting took place at a restaurant on a busy street at night. A police officer shot and killed the gunman. A Hamas spokesman said it was a heroic act and is a response to today's Israeli operation in the occupied West Bank, where forces killed three Palestinian gunmen. The shooting also comes after months of intensified violence, in which more than 70 Palestinians and more than a dozen Israelis have been killed. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, visiting Israel today, called on officials to calm tensions. The Tel Aviv shooting also comes at the end of a long day of protest. Israeli demonstrators blocked main roads, protesting the government's efforts to weaken the judiciary. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Number of people filing first-time jobless claims rose last week by the largest amount in five months, the Labor Department reporting today. Applications for unemployment benefits rose last week by 21,000 to a seasonally adjusted 211,000. The four-week moving average was up 4,000. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. For the past three decades, every Massachusetts governor has claimed their office is completely exempt from the state's public records law. Maura Healey claimed last year after her election that her administration would be different. But as WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, that has not been the case. Healy's office refused to give WBUR copies of any sexual harassment complaints filed with the governor's office in the last five years. It also withheld settlement and severance agreements. Justin Silverman is executive director of the New England First Amendment Coalition. So I think, unfortunately, this is Governor Healy continuing to say that she's being transparent and following the public records law when, in fact, she's taking the same position as her predecessors. So different governor, same story. 
The governor's office said it plans to voluntarily abide by the public records law going forward, but it says that policy doesn't apply to any documents created before she took office, and it could withhold records for other reasons. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Today, the Massachusetts Senate passed a supplemental state budget for the upcoming fiscal year. The $368 million measure includes $130 million for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits. The funds come as expanded SNAP benefits from the federal government have expired. The budget proposal also includes money to extend a free school meals program in public schools. Missing from the package is a proposal to allow restaurants to serve takeout cocktails for another year. The Senate and House must to work out differences between the budget packages each chamber has passed. White supremacist propaganda activity in New England is at an all-time high. That's the finding of a new report from an international anti-hate organization. The activity includes distribution of flyers and public gatherings by white supremacist groups. And last year, Massachusetts recorded the second highest number of these incidents in the country. Here's WBR's Fausto Menard. The Anti-Defamation League says New England saw a 96% increase in this kind of activity between 2021 and 2022. There were 465 such incidents in Massachusetts last year, second only to Texas. The League's Peggy Shuker says hate messages can have a lasting effect on people. If you were in a town and you receive a hateful, racist, or anti-Semitic message, that tells you you're not welcome. That creates fear. It makes you intimidated from maybe engaging in things in your own community. Shuker says incidents of hate should be reported. She also encourages people to gather in public to let hate groups know that they are not welcome in their community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The number of people riding the T may never return to what it was before the pandemic. The assessment came today from the chair of the MBTA's board of directors. The T's chief financial officer also told Beacon Hill lawmakers today ridership is just more than half of pre-pandemic levels. T officials say factors at play include shutdowns for repairs and service reductions the federal government forced because of safety concerns. Should have a moonlit night tonight, partly cloudy skies, lows about 30, tomorrow sunny and dry and milder, inching up to the high 40s, 43 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden rolled out a $6.9 trillion budget proposal today with a speech in a Philadelphia Union Hall. My expression, my dad, you show me your budget, I will tell you what you value. Well, folks, let me tell you what I value for the budget I'm releasing today. This budget is more a statement of values than a roadmap for what Congress will actually pass. Presidential budgets are required by law. Biden's gives a likely preview of what he'll run on when he launches his expected re-election campaign. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is here in the studio to tell us about it. Hey, Tam. Hey, Ari. Before we get to the politics, let's start with the substance. In the lead up to the budget's release, the White House talked a lot about deficit reduction, bringing spending more in line with revenue. Now that the budget is out, how close does it come to doing that? This is not an austerity budget. It includes pages and pages of programs that Biden says will make life easier for working families. Things like paid family leave, college affordability, universal free preschool. Uh, It calls for increased spending on border security and continued support for Ukraine. 
it also notably extends the life of Medicare by 20 years by by allowing more negotiation on uh, prescription drug prices and also by raising taxes on the wealthy. Is that how this is paid for, by raising taxes? Yes. Taxing the rich and large corporations is a major feature of this budget. It calls for closing what the White House calls tax loopholes for oil and drug companies. It would include rolling back some of the tax breaks passed by Republicans during the Trump administration uh, and getting rid of other tax breaks that have been around for even longer. Biden argued that this was all just a matter of fairness. No billionaire should be paying a lower tax than somebody working as a school teacher or a firefighter or any of you in this room. I do have to say this was really a campaign style event. And mm. Biden appears to be gearing up for a campaign that will focus on reaching middle and working class voters with an economic pitch. Presidential budgets are typically dead on arrival in Congress, no matter who is in power. Uh, of course, right now, Republicans control the House. So what are your expectations for where this budget's going to go? Oh, it's dead on arrival. Okay. Uh, and the White House knows it. Uh, but that doesn't appear to be the point here. Much of what Biden calls for in this budget are ideas and proposals that he campaigned on three years ago. And, and the White House has jammed our inboxes with polls showing how popular many of these ideas are with the American people. And so even though Republicans say this proposal isn't serious and there's no chance they would support tax increases like this, um, this budget is an opening offer from Biden, both in negotiations with Congress over raising the debt ceiling and in funding the government. So Biden has now said, all right, America, here's what I want to do. Have Republicans in Congress done the same? Yes. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that this budget proposal was completely unserious uh, and that Washington has a spending problem, not a tax problem. And he was critical of President Biden for not sitting down with him and just sort of hashing out a budget compromise. Biden responded to that today in his remarks, saying he would be happy to meet with McCarthy just as soon as he releases his own budget. Um, House Republicans aren't yet saying uh, what they will do. Uh, they say that they need cuts in order to raise the debt ceiling, but they haven't yet said what they will cut. And they don't want to cut Medicare or defense, which leaves a pretty small piece of the overall pie where they would have to get all these big cuts that they're asking for. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. For two decades, with overdose deaths on the rise, the federal government limited access to an opioid addiction treatment that's seen as the gold standard. It's a medication called buprenorphine. Clinicians who wanted to prescribe it needed special approval from federal drug agents. But now, that requirement is gone. From member station WBUR in Boston, reporter Martha Biebinger looks at the impact. That tightly controlled medication, buprenorphine, has helped a woman named Kim stay off heroin and avoid an overdose for nearly 20 years. We're only using Kim's first name to prevent discrimination linked to her drug use. Kim uses a brand of buprenorphine called Suboxone, thin strips of film she dissolves under her tongue. It's the best thing they could have ever come out with. I don't think I ever even had a desire to use heroin since I've been taking them. That's because buprenorphine is an opioid that reduces cravings for heroin or fentanyl. It has much weaker effects than those drugs. Some clinicians worry about using an opioid to treat an addiction to opioids, but study after study shows it helps people stay off the more dangerous drugs, so there's a substantially lower risk of overdose and death. I don't get high on Suboxone. They just keep me normal. But Kim's had a hard time finding a primary care doctor willing to prescribe Suboxone. So she bounces from one treatment program to another. Sometimes her prescriptions lapse and the cravings return. 
That's especially scary now when what's sold on the streets is increasingly the powerful opioid fentanyl. I've seen so many people fall out in the last month. Fall out as in overdose. That stuff is so strong that Mm -hmm. within a couple minutes, boom. Last year, as deaths after an overdose topped 100,000, only about 7% of doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants were licensed to prescribe buprenorphine. The extra steps required by the Drug Enforcement Administration were a major obstacle. Prescribers had to take an eight-hour training. They could only treat a limited number of patients and had to keep special records. They were given a DEA registration number starting with X, a letter that many say made them a target for drug enforcement audits. Dr. Bobby McCamala is with the American Medical Association. Just the process associated with being able to take care of our patients with substance use disorder made us feel like, boy, this is dangerous stuff. The science doesn't support that, but the rigmarole suggested that. The rigmarole is mostly gone. Congress X'd what became known as the X waiver in legislation President Biden signed late last year. But McCamala says that perception the waiver created, that Suboxone was dangerous, lingers. So there is the legacy of elevating this to a level of scrutiny and caution that needs to be sort of walked back. And I think that's going to come from education. A new generation of doctors, nurses, and physician assistants are coming out of schools that have added addiction care training. For clinicians who've been out of school for a while, there are lots of resources online. The nation's drug czar, Dr. Rahul Gupta, says getting rid of the X waiver will ultimately save millions of lives. The impact of this will be felt for years to come. It is a true historic change that, frankly, I could only dream of being possible. But other addiction experts wonder, was the waiver the actual reason clinicians weren't treating people addicted to opioids? Or an excuse used to mask disdain for these patients? The truth serum moment is happening in clinics across the country, including one where Kim is a patient. Nurse Jamie Simmons says many patients with a substance use disorder are complicated like Kim. Today was your last Suboxone film from the last prescription? Mm -hmm. Okay. Simmons spends all her time on a relatively small number of addiction patients at the Greater New Bedford Community Health Center in southern Massachusetts. Simmons cannot prescribe Suboxone herself, but Kim's primary care doctor may be willing to give it a try now that the X waiver is gone. Simmons warns Kim that her doctor is worried about drug interactions after learning that Kim uses cocaine and Xanax occasionally. She is a little hesitant to keep going, but I'm asking her for more time to work with you so that we can try to <coughs> try to work together on, on some of these other things as well. So here's Simmons' plan. She'll manage most of Kim's care while helping the doctor get comfortable with offering addiction treatment. Simmons says buprenorphine prescribing has to become more routine. Because you wouldn't not treat a diabetic. You wouldn't not treat a patient who is hypertensive. People can't control that they formed an addiction to opiate alcohol or a benzo. But Simmons knows there are clinicians who do not see addiction as a disease like diabetes. Others hesitate because they don't have a nurse like Simmons on staff to manage addiction care. Right now, only about a quarter of patients who might benefit are prescribed the medication. Eliminating the X waiver will increase the number, but it's not clear how much or how fast. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Boston. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WBUR and Kaiser Health News. 
Topol, the Israeli actor who starred in the film Fiddler on the Roof, has died. He was 87 years old. Israel's president announced Topol's passing on Twitter last night. Jeff London has this appreciation. When the film version of Fiddler on the Roof was released in 1971, it starred a relatively obscure actor with a single name, Topol, as Tevya the Dairyman. Oh, dear Lord. You made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. It was the role of a lifetime. If I were a rich man, all day long, if I were a wealthy man. Born Chaim Topol in Tel Aviv in what was then called Palestine, he trained to be a commercial artist but found his calling as a stage actor, co-founding the Haifa Municipal Theatre where he played Shakespeare in Hebrew. But when he was cast in an Israeli production of Fiddler, it led to him playing the father of five daughters in London when he was just 30. That's where film director Norman Jewison saw him, and the rest is history. Isn't this the little girl I carry? Isn't this the little boy at play? While Topol acted in many movies and television series, Tevya kept calling him back. By his own estimate, he played the role 3,500 times on stage around the world. To life, to life. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Hey Ari, you know how this week Dominion Voting Systems is getting a lot of attention for its defamation lawsuit against Fox News? Yeah, it feels like there's new documents every day. Totally. Well, now there's more fallout around Dominion happening right here in California. We're going to have more on that in just a few minutes. I'll be listening. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in business. The Dow lost more than 1.5% today, 544 points, to close at 32,255. S&P fell more than one and three quarters percent to end the session at 39.18. The Nasdaq dropped 2% to finish at 11,338. Cambridge-based startup Corallis just got an $88 million cash infusion. The biotech wants to develop medicines to treat dementia and other diseases such as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. The financing was led by the venture capital units of pharmaceutical giants Amgen and Sanofi. This is WBUR. Marketplace has more business news coming up in just about 10 minutes. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The off chance of a rain shower tonight should be cloudy, down around 30 for a low. Tomorrow should be the mildest day of the week and the sunniest, too, reaching 48 degrees. It is 44 degrees now in Boston at 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths & Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. (laughs) Fairbankandperry.com. 
In sports, the Bruins are at the Garden tonight to take on the Edmonton Oilers, 7.30 start time. Red Sox are holding on as the only undefeated Major League Baseball team in spring training. Today, the Sox made it even nicer because they beat the Yankees 11-7 in Tampa. Boston got six home runs. Right fielder Narcisco Crook was good for two of them. This is 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. An automatic upgrade to first class on a flight? Cash back for your date night dinner? Elite status hotel bookings. Do those free credit card perks actually come at a price? And if so, who pays it? Well, our next guest argues that people with less financial security are subsidizing those bonuses for wealthier urban professionals. Chinzi Shu is a finance professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello. Explain this argument that credit card rewards amount to a tax on less affluent people. How does that work? So credit card companies um, charge fees for when merchants uh, use cards. And this is because they provide a service. So uh, interchange fees cover things like fraud protection, for instance. This is very useful. But Actually, credit card companies want to compete for users, and they compete by creating really nice perks. And then they fund those perks on the back end by charging merchants more for every swipe. And so when merchants see, actually, I have a pretty big bill coming from Interchange, what they do is they raise prices. And everybody pays those prices regardless of whether they're using a credit card or not. And since less wealthy people use credit cards less frequently, they end up paying for the fancy perks that rich people are getting? Essentially, yes. So the prices that the merchants are using to recoup their losses on interchange are paid by everybody. And then the fees that the merchants are paying are being rebated back to wealthy credit card users. Mm. There are lawmakers who see this as a problem. Tell us what people in Congress are talking about doing. So there was a, a Durban amendment that was passed a while ago that regulated interchange fees and debit cards. And when that happened, we saw that debit rewards went down. Senator Durbin has essentially introduced a bill that would do the same for credit cards. And I believe the idea is to model it somewhat like the way interchange is regulated in Europe, for instance, where once you cap the amount of fees that can be charged to merchants, what you'll see is that there's actually not going to be enough to fund these rewards. And so the rewards go away. But now that the fees are lower, the merchants aren't passing on those fees to prices as much as they would have done before. So what advice do you have for consumers? Well, <laughs> I mean, like, is this the credit card companies and the lawmakers problem? Or if I'm using a card and worried that the perks are unethical, or if I'm not using a card and worried that I'm carrying the water of rich people, like what... Should this be a concern to the individual? Well, this is one of those cases where um, the structure of the way cards compete for customers and the way merchants try to compete for customers makes it so that you know if you're carrying a card, you're strictly better off and you want to keep doing that. And it's hard to get out of that system without something that looks like system-wide 
interchange regulation. Sounds like you're saying there's not much the individual can do. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) if you are a business owner who sets prices, you can potentially price discriminate. You mean like charge a a fee for credit card users? Exactly. If we lived in a world where everybody just paid the fees that their payment method actually charged the store, then this redistributive element would go away. Right now, everybody pays the same price, but some get the perk and some don't. So if every business owner just said, you use a credit card, you're going to pay 1% more, whatever it is, this problem would more or less be solved? This problem would be mitigated by a lot. Yes. That's Stanford Business School finance professor Chinzi Shu, along with Jeffrey Rapucci. She wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times with the headline, The Dirty Little Secret of Credit Card Rewards Programs. Thank you. Thank you. A county in Northern California has dropped a voting system that has faced a barrage of election fraud conspiracy theories. The system is from Dominion, which says the move is, quote, yet another example of how lies have damaged the company. As Roman Battaglia from Jefferson Public Radio reports, the controversial decision has now left the county without a way to conduct elections. Shasta County is small and rural, occupying the northernmost end of the Sacramento Valley. This deeply red corner of a blue state has been embroiled in unproven claims of fraud since the 2020 election. The county's board of supervisors has shifted more conservative in recent years, and public fights between supervisors and election officials aren't uncommon. The tone and the tenor of this conversation is further destroying the trust. No. Yes, it is. No, it's not. You're contributing to that problem. In late January, county supervisors terminated their contract with Dominion, Leading that charge was board chair Patrick Jones. Jones has been highly critical of any kind of electronic voting machine. And for people to say that we have free and fair elections without knowing really all the things that have been going on and the things that we know, it's just not true. Jones has focused his anger on Dominion, echoing attacks the company has faced by right-wing conspiracy theorists since the 2020 election. Donald Trump supporters repeatedly and falsely claim that Dominion machines were used to switch votes from Trump to Joe Biden. And Dominion has launched defamation lawsuits, including a high-profile case against Fox News that's currently being argued in court. Back in Shasta County, the board voted 3-2 to two to get rid of Dominion. Instead, they're exploring a system that involves hand-counting ballots. Mary Rickert is one of the two supervisors who voted against the decision. I'm just saying that it's a poor financial decision for us to terminate the contract with Dominion. I think we're potentially opening up ourselves for litigation for Shasta County. I am very risk adverse. I think it's a total waste of money. The litigation she's talking about is a federal law requiring that disabled voters have a way to vote independently, which requires some form of mechanical or electronic voting machine. Board Chair Patrick Jones believes that removing all machines from elections will increase trust in the results. But research has found hand-counting ballots is more expensive, more time-consuming, and less accurate than using a machine. One supervisor who voted with Jones, Kevin Cry, believes he's found the solution to possible accessibility lawsuits. He says he solicited outside funding from the prominent election fraud conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell. And I'm not about to waste money on anything, especially this. So I have secured the money, and I uh, will support upholding my decision because we will not use Shasta County money to go down this direction. Cry says that Lindell will put money in an escrow account to pay for any legal fees the county might face from lawsuits. That offer drew harsh criticism from the two supervisors not in support of the changes, 
including Tim Garman. Again, I appreciate what you're trying to do. What am I trying to do, Supervisor Garman? You're trying to save the county money by putting it up for sale. Lindell himself is the target of a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit from Dominion. If the county wants to try counting ballots by hand, they first need approval from the Secretary of State, which could take at least nine months. Until then, without choosing another vendor, Shasta County doesn't have a way to conduct elections at all. That's left thousands of county residents even more confused about the trustworthiness of its elections. For NPR News, I'm Roman Battaglia in Shasta County, California. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, really nice. Sunny and milder could reach the high 40s. Weekend is looking mixed. There is a chance of light snow and rain early Saturday. Lots of clouds, highs near 40. Sunday, bright sunshine rising to just about 43 degrees. In the Boston area now, it is 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 6.30 and Marketplace is coming up next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Master's in Organizational Psychology for careers in HR and talent management. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. And Direct Hire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com.